provoked, prudent, and positioned. Acts 17, 13 to 20. Let me state the obvious that in the first century, it was exciting to be an apostle. <laughs> Every day it was something different, risk, but also higher reward, opposition, but also salvation decisions, threat, but also deliverance. And the last time together in Acts 17, verses 10 to 12, we saw that the Apostle Paul saw that the word of God was well-received in a place called Berea. And referring to the citizens of Berea, verses 11 and 12 give an encouraging summation. Of the Bereans, it says, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Verse 12, many of them, therefore, believed along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Yes, the word of God was received well in Berea. But swiftly, their opposition to the gospel arose, as it often does. Verse 13, but when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea, also, they came there likewise agitating and stirring up the crowds. The Thessalonians who resisted the word of God weren't just content to resist the word of God in the borders of their city. They heard that the Bereans were receiving the word of God. That made them so angry that they walked the 45 miles between the two cities to stir up trouble against the gospel and the apostles there in Berea. Ever notice that? Spiritual mountaintops associated with sharing the gospel can often give way to spiritual valleys. And sometimes the higher the mountaintop in evangelizing, the lower the valley after we do evangelize. It's kind of the way it works. There's an enemy that hates the gospel. He's a defeated foe but he wants to snipe, try to undermine, try to block what God is doing through the amazing truth that Christ has died for sins and arisen. That's the message. Sometimes that valleying out of a mountain experience with, the, with evangelism happens really fast. In the church I pastored in Pennsylvania, a new couple started to attend the church and the wife phoned me, told me her husband was unsaved. Would I particularly share the gospel with her husband and pray for his salvation? Of course, which I was very glad to do. But then a very odd thing happened. He trusted Jesus Christ to be his Lord and Savior, and I phoned her up. And her response was odd to me. She wasn't enthusiastic. She wasn't very happy. She was very flat. Oh, that's all right. And then, about two weeks later, she said, I, I want to come and speak to you, Pastor. I said, sure. She said, you know how you led Calvin to saving faith in Christ? I said, yeah, wasn't that great? She goes, I don't like it. <laughs> Why? Because he's trying to take leadership in our home from me. Exactly what she said. Here was a woman that on the surface wanted her husband's eternal soul to be saved by Jesus Christ, but when Jesus Christ saved the man's eternal soul, she got angry. 
because he was starting to want to do what God showed him to do in the New Testament, to serve his family by servant leading his wife, and she didn't like it. Within a month, she put him out of his house, and she drained all the money out of their joint bank account. Sometimes when we share our faith and God saves individuals, sometimes the aftermath looks more like a valley than a mountain. Press on. I told him he was living in a motel. I said, the church will pay for your motel and I will pray that your wife will get saved. She's not a Christian. That she'll repent. I don't know what happened after a couple months. And so the Thessalonians who resisted the gospel so much that they had to move Paul out of Thessalonica 45 miles to Berea, when those guys heard that the Bereans were not resisting the word of God, but receiving the word of God gladly, they walked the 45 miles to make a hassle and a blockage, at least attempt to, for the gospel and for the apostles. And this brings me to our sermon's first point of three. And it's a one-word point, provoked. Provoked. Verses 14 to 16, Acts 17. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. Now those who, condu- who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit, watch, was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. Paul wasn't very long in Athens, sitting there waiting for colleagues in ministry, observing what was going on around him, and he saw idolatry, all kinds of it, and it provoked him. It provoked him. Athens was about 140 miles southeast of Berea. No small trip. And the Apostle Paul got there before Silas and Timothy joined him. I just wonder what Paul was thinking and praying as he waited for Silas and Timothy in the huge city of Athens. I mean, he had been run out of Thessalonica by an angry mob. He left the city by night because of the risk on his life. And then when he got, uh, after departing Thessalonica, he faced more rejection and threat of the ministry and to his life in Berea as the same angry Thessalonians came to Berea to mess him up. I wonder what he was thinking, waiting for his colleagues there in Athens. Wonder what he was praying Well, apparently, he wasn't thinking about himself. That's a good start. 
And he wasn't thinking about danger, and he wasn't thinking about playing it safe, and he wasn't thinking about gagging his mouth about the gospel, and he wasn't thinking about any regrets in ministry. He wasn't thinking about his comfortable former life led as a Pharisee before conversion. He wasn't thinking about any of that. And he wasn't thinking about or praying about quitting either. Do you know what the scriptures say that he was thinking about? And praying about verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him. Why? As he was beholding the city full of idols. That's what provoked him. He was provoked. He was thinking about gospel ministry. His gospel ministry and that they needed more help with other gospel ministers in Athens because of the idolatry. He was thinking about God's glory and how idols and those who worship idols were stealing God's glory. He was thinking about idols and what an offense they were to holy God there in Athens. And he was provoked in his spirit, little less. The Greek word for what was going on inside of the Apostle Paul means to be stirred. A kindred Greek word to this one used in 17 verse 16 is used in chapter 15 verse 39 to describe the friction, the sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over the future ministry of John Mark. And so when it says that he was provoked, that he was stirred in his spirit, it'd be like taking a a power mixer in the kitchen, ladies, and what that would do to a bowl of milk and eggs and flour. Stirred up. He had friction with the idolatry. He wasn't settled. He wasn't passive. He wasn't resigned that it just will be an idolatrous city. It's really something. The Holy Spirit lets Paul know that idols in in Athens were worthy of provoking him as an ambassador for Christ. And by extension, all these centuries later, we too should be provoked by idolatry in our country, by idolatry in our city. We should have a sharp, inner disagreement with idolatry. We should have an attitude and an outlook that is extreme opposite to the ideas of live and let live. Opposite to whatever floats your boat. Opposite to I don't want to get involved. Opposite to it's too far gone to do anything. Opposite to idols are good for you, God is good for me. Opposite to idols and Christianity, somehow they can coexist. Opposite to the outlook that I'll just turn the other way. Or contrary to the attitude, pastors who we pay, they have to handle the idolatry in Nassau. No. Paul was provoked, and so should we be. You say, what idols are in Nassau, Pastor? Where would you like to start? 
Anything that Nasuvians trust more than God is an idol. Anything that Nasuvians love more than God is an idol. Anything that Nasuvians serve more than God is an idol. The love of money, gambling, materialism, gangs and violence, thievery, begging, scams, extortion and exploitation. These are some of our idols. Religious superstitions, religious power, political power, price gouging, greed, taking advantage of tourists. What a stupid thing to do. God is our provider, but they are our bread and butter. Why will we mess with tourists? To make them unsafe in the U.S. Embassy issues a warning not to come to Nassau except under certain conditions. Idols. Personal power pastors who would have you to believe that the church they pastor is their church. No, it isn't. It's Jesus Christ's church. And the people in the church are blood-bought by Christ. Pastor doesn't own them. A prosperity false gospel is an idol. Trust Jesus Christ and you can see him as an ATM and just make cash withdrawals based on faith. Gospelless churches who never preach against sin, who never preach the cross, who never say that we're alienated by God, dead in trespass and sin, and unless we are born again, unless we are converted, we are going to hell. That's the truth. What other idols in Nassau? Sex outside of marriage and the abomination called sweethearting. Deceit. It used to be, I'm told, in this city that no one would dare to lie to a clergyman. Now they lie straight to my face without batting an eye. Idols. Sloth. That's a fancy old word for laziness. Idolatry in Nassau should provoke you and should bring you to your knees in prayer, and it should me as well. And provoked, we should speak out against idolatry in our city and country. You know, just like you can tell a lot about a person by his friends they have, you can also tell a lot about a person by the things that provoke them. The sports team you bet money on last night losing ought not to provoke you. But illegal abortions in our country should provoke you. From Paul being provoked over idolatry, we move to our second point, which is prudent. Prudent. In large part, Paul was waiting in Athens because he was being prudent, wise. And he got to be in the place of prudence, that is Athens, by taking direction on more than one occasion from Christian friends. Look at verse 10 of the chapter. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. That is the Thessalonican believers told them, go to Berea. 
verse 14a, and then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. That was the Berean Christians telling him to leave Berea. And he listened. He was prudent. Verse 15, now those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. Clearly, the brethren that surrounded the Apostle Paul had a lot to say in the Apostle Paul's life, where he ministered, when it was or wasn't too dangerous to minister, when he should move on, and to where he should move. These are all determined by the counsel, the suggestion, the wisdom, the prudence of the Christians that surrounded Paul in those various cities. And so why did they... How did they, why did they have such impact in Paul's steps of ministry, in the doing of God's will? How was it that the brethren in these two cities had such a sway in Paul's planning? Because he let them wisely, because he was humble, Because he believed that they were in tune with God, and so if they gave him advice, because they were in tune with God, it was indirectly from God. The brethren had the sway and the leading in his life because he knew that they loved him and wanted the best for him. The brethren made a difference in how he planned his ministry because he accepted that often God causes people to help us to understand his will in certain matters. And Paul believed that there was safety in a multitude of counselors. You know the verse, Proverbs eleven fourteen, where there is no guidance, in the Hebrew literally it's steering, where there is no steering, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Paul put that Old Testament principle into practice in the New Testament. And the Christians around him telling him, you're in danger here, you need to go, you need to move on. He listened, he was wise, he was prudent. So we've had the truth that he was provoked by idolatry. He was prudent because he took the counsel of other Christians who cared about him. We move to our third and our last point, that he was positioned. The Apostle Paul was positioned right where God wanted him to be, verses 17 and 18. So He was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present, verse 18. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler, the literal Greek says seed picker, wish to say? There he was, run out of Thessalonica. There he was, run out of Berea, sitting in Athens, waiting for further direction from the Holy Spirit as to what to do. And he began sharing his faith to the derogatory comments of the Athenians. Calling him a seed picker or an idle babbler was putting him down as being uneducated, unsophisticated, not very smart. Boy, they were wrong. In Athens... Paul found himself positioned for exceptional gospel ministry at the Oropagus. This Oropagus was the most highly respected council that had charge, all charge, of religious and educational matters in the great city of Athens. And that's where God positioned his servant Paul to be. The Oropagus was the big leagues. 
It was prime time. It was very important persons. It was province and worldwide influencers. It might be something like being positioned in the United Nations in New York City. I can think this week of so many other Bible characters, Old and New Testament, where God in his wisdom and providence and sovereignty positioned them to have wide, wide-ranging impact for God. Listen to the people I thought of who were positioned by God. Noah, Joseph, Moses, Daniel, Esther, Samson, Deborah, Samuel, Solomon, John the Baptist, Nicodemus, the Ethiopian lunic, eunuch, Joseph of Arimathea, and supremely, the supreme example of God positioning one of his servants for the widest possible impact is the Lord Jesus Christ. Bethlehem to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And you're sitting there listening and saying, that's good. Yeah, you can see that all those Bible characters were positioned by God to have mighty ministries, to have effectual ministries, to have ministries that were bigger than they were. That's nice, Pastor. Guess what? Little old you, believer. Little old you. You have been positioned right where God wants you to be. You've been positioned. It might not be the Acropolis. Your school for the young people are here. God's got you positioned there. Your after-school activities, young people. Music, sports, other things. He's positioned you. Those of us who are still working, our employment, our workplace, those working beside us every day at a desk, we're positioned. Our neighbors, the street that we live on, the people God has put beside us, where our house or apartment is. We're positioned. Our extended family, you are in the family that you are in because God positioned you in that family. Positioned. The coffee shop you regularly go to for your coffee, positioned. The food truck you regularly get tuna and grits from, positioned. If you take a vacation, Where you are on vacation, positioned. Many a vacation. I've had opportunities to turn conversations to spiritual things. Many. The bag boys and the bag girls at Super Value or Fresh Market or whatever grocery store you shop at. The bag boys and the bag girls. You see them when you're shopping. Cultivate a relationship with them for Jesus' sake. Give them a gospel tract. There's all kinds in the church to give you for free. Positioned on your days off. What do you do on your days off? Maybe you do laundry. Maybe you tidy your house. Maybe you wash your car. And that's all good. But your days off can be God's positioning of you for the sake of the gospel. Your repairman. The guy you count on when something goes wrong, your mechanic, your electrician, your plumber, you're positioned. Your doctor's office. (laughs) Last time I went to the doctor for my physical, I was just being friendly to a man waiting to see the doctor, 
We got talking about Christ. We got talking about salvation. We got talking about grace in the doctor's office. Positioned. And here's one for you. (laughs) The line at the bank. That could take a long time. And the guy ahead of you and behind you is trapped. He is trapped. You're positioned. And so as I close, it's a good thing to be provoked by idolatry. To not let it ride. It's a good thing to be prudent, not reckless, to listen to other believers as they give you wise counsel, to be in places where you can have a freedom to serve God. And it's great to know your position. That any day you live isn't random, any day you live isn't chance or luck. Any day you live is because God has positioned you right where you are to represent him. I'll tell you one last thing. If I share my faith in the doctor's office or in the bank line, that's fine and dandy. But if it comes out that I'm a pastor, that gets discounted because pastors are paid to do that kind of thing in people's minds. But if you do it, If you share your faith in your doctor's office, for example, or in the bank line, and you're not a paid pastor, that makes people sit up and take notice. I've seen it time and time again. Let's pray. Stand with me to pray. Heavenly Father, your word is so clear. And the example of the Apostle Paul is so helpful. We desire, Lord, to be provoked by the things that provoke you. That we would see idolatry for what it is. And would not have it in our own lives, but not tolerate it around us. Lord, give us prudence to listen to others that love you. To be teachable, flexible so that we will be in a prudent place, but then recognize that we're in a positioned place. Lord, forgive us when we've been embarrassed about you or we've written other people off as being beyond your salvation. Forgive us when we've been too busy to care for someone's soul. May we see this week where you've positioned us so that we would practice what has been preached today. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name and God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated.